0: I'm guessing if you guys are like our family, you've watched your fair share of Christmas movies already this, uh, this season. It's kind of interesting though, as you think about Christmas movies, there's usually a common plot line in many of them, and it involves the need to save Christmas. You heard this phrase, we need to save Christmas. There's all sorts of things that seem to be a threat to Christmas. Uh, if you lose your Christmas tree and you roast a beast, uh, that's going to bring an end to Christmas. In uh, uh, other ways, it's something's happened with uh, Santa's reindeer or his sleigh that Buddy the Elf needs to spread some Christmas cheer in order to save Christmas. Uh, similar things come up with, whether it's Christmas Chronicles or whatever it may be. The interesting thing is, is that... It's not a movie I've seen. You can correct me if you've seen one. But I've never seen a movie where the need to save Christmas has anything to do with Jesus. There's all sorts of things that it seems are necessary to have Christmas. And without them, Christmas will come to an end and it needs to be saved. It means family getting together. It means having your tree and your feast And all your gifts. But is Jesus? Is Jesus necessary? Is he essential to having Christmas? There was a news report out just last week from Fort Worth, Texas. That similar plot line, the need to save Christmas. It seems that at 2.30 in the morning at a Fort Worth shopping plaza, a man in jeans and a sweatshirt ventures up into a life-size nativity scene and steals baby Jesus, picks him up, walks away, and leaves. Fort Worth police and the shopping center security guards don't know what's happened, yet they are doing their part, hashtagging video of this guy, sending it out. Help us save Christmas, they want Jesus back before Christmas because, at least on some level, they seem to recognize that Jesus is essential in some way to their being Christmas. Well, actually, if we if we think about it, as we look in the scriptures, not having Jesus brings an end to far more than any holiday or any celebration. Jesus isn't just the heart and the key to Christmas, but in fact, as we're going to see this morning, Jesus is the key to the hope of all of humanity. It's not just Christmas that is at stake without Jesus. How important... Is Jesus to Christmas really brings us down to this question, what is Christmas really all about? So if you would, turn with me to the book of Revelation. That's a shocker for a Christmas sermon, huh? Turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 12, this is all the way at the end of your Bible. If you're following along in one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is Page 1034. This is a book that was written by John, one of Jesus' authorized spokespersons, uh, that Jesus himself entrusted with uh, passing on his authorized uh, instruction and teaching about the person and the work of Jesus. John's written several books in, our, uh, in the Scriptures. He's written the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and this book here uh, that contains a uh, communication of, uh, of a vision uh, that Jesus gives John to communicate to uh, groups of churches in uh, Asia Minor who were suffering persecution and assault uh, by the Roman government. John himself was actually in exile on the isle of Patmos for proclaiming the good news and the message that Jesus is king. So he writes to them, he writes to us to encourage us to hope in Christ. If you have trouble understanding the book of Revelation, this is all that it's about. Jesus wins. So, let's look at our passage this morning. Kids, this is what you can do instead of counting words this morning, I want you to draw me a picture. I want you to draw me a picture of a manger scene with a dragon. If that sounds confusing. You'll understand it as we move forward. Manger scene with a dragon. So, follow along with me. Your copy there of God's Word, beginning in verse one of chapter twelve, going down through verse six. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for this revelation of yours as you've given to John, as you've given to your people. We know you've not given us this book for confusion, but for comfort. We pray this morning that as your original audience of this book found great comfort in its truths that we too this morning as Your people might hope and rest and be comforted in Jesus our King. In His name we pray. Amen. So as you may hear, have heard, as we read it, the book of Revelation doesn't quite sound like many of the other books in the Bible. Um, there's uh, To understand the, the type of book uh, this is, uh, it 's a, a book of prophecy it 's obviously it 's a letter written to some churches, but also it involves what uh is called ap- apocalyptic literature where john is what John is doing is he 's using imagery to help direct and give god 's people a, a clearer and more fuller vision of what 's going on in their world of who jesus is he 's not some crazy code to break as far as to figure out who these beasts are going to be in the future. No, John is like anybody in the Scriptures who's following Jesus understands that the way that we understand this book is to interpret it according to Scripture. And what John is doing is he's using uh, uh, imagery and he's alluding to other places in the Old Testament to help God's people understand now what's going on and how to cope and live and dwell in God's world as they r- await Jesus' return. Uh, the Old Testament gives us the worldview by which we understand and interpret the New Testament. And so let's cooperate with John, the author. Let's look back first in order for us to understand this to, to, get, a, to get an idea of what imagery he's using in these, these pictures. Who is this woman? Who is the... The, the dragon. Who is the child? What is it about the, the wilderness? Uh, so, just as we get a, get a feel for this, John's using and writing to an audience that would have understood the Old Testament Scriptures and would have been able to identify who these people were. What is it? Look at the first, this woman. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. So this woman is identified, and notice the, the defining features that John gives is sun, moon, and stars. Back in Genesis chapter 37, Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, uh, is uh, given dreams by God that he is able then to uh, interpret. This comes to play a big part later on in his life and the redemption of of, uh, of God's people at the time. Listen to this dream that Joseph has and that he recounts to his father and his brothers. See, so if you remember those details, what are we listening for? Sun, moon, and stars. Verse 9 of chapter 37. Then he, Joseph, dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun... The moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, he rebuked them. his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So here, but they understand. What Jacob understands Joseph to be communicating is that the sun, moon, and the stars symbolize his family. Jacob is going to be given another name. It's Israel. See, the, 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 this, this imagery of the sun, the moon, and the stars symbolizes, as John's drawing our attention back to this Old Testament imagery, is talking about the Old Testament people of God it's going to be from this family the people of Israel come from. Uh, Just to see that we're on track. He he describes this woman, clothed in the the sun, the moon, and the stars, as also in verse 2, she was pregnant and crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. A lot of places, especially in Isaiah, as God is writing and talking about the, the suffering and the difficulty that His people Israel go to, go through, He portrays their suffering in this imagery of a woman being pregnant and in labor and in agony. So here we see John drawing these two things together. This picture of the sun, the moon, and the stars, and this woman in agony. The woman here in this passage is identified as is the Old Testament church. The Old Testament people of God. What's going on with her? Well, notice what we see in verse 3. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. Well, uh, over in... Later in chapter 12, we see John directly identifies for us who this uh, dragon is. Look in verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Here, this imagery of the dragon, John is saying, is Satan. He's describing him as being an ancient serpent. That imagery isn't hard for us to figure out. I mean, any pictures you've seen of dragons, they look like big snakes with wings and feet, grotesque. But think of this imagery. Where is John putting us? Notice the details that we're we're getting. We have a a, a woman who's mentioned, and she's in in agony and pain and labor. Involved and connected with her is a serpent. Who? What is he seeking to do? Look in verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So this woman is going to have a child and what the serpent wants to do is to destroy it. There's enmity between the the offspring of the woman and the serpent. All this puts us back in Genesis chapter 3. Turn back to Genesis chapter 3, back in the beginning of your Bible. When Adam and Eve uh, disobeyed God, uh, when they decided they wanted to be ruler and not God, God uh, punishes them with uh, a curse, but also there's a promise. Listen to what he says as he curses both the serpent and Adam and Eve. And Yahweh God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, "'cursed are you above all livestock "'and above all beasts of the field. "'On your belly you shall go, "'and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. "'I will put enmity between you and the woman "'and between your offspring and her offspring. "'He shall bruise your head, "'and you shall bruise his heel. "'To the woman he said, "'I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. "'In pain you shall bring forth children.' Here, again, we see all this imagery coming together. There's a woman who God has promised is going to have an offspring, a child. This child will ultimately bring an end, a mortal wound to the serpent, who will wound his head. And the serpent and the woman, their offspring are at enmity and they are battling with one another. Here, the picture we see is John is putting us back and giving us a picture of really what humanity has been like up to this point. Because the serpent recognizes and understands that his enemy is found in this offspring, this child, this promised one who is yet to come. God promised to Adam and Eve that from the woman one would be born, Who would bring an end to sin, to rebellion, and to the serpent? And so here, now we have the pieces to understand what is going on here. God is giving us this this picture through John's, uh, John's dream and his vision of this great struggle between Satan and God's people, between Satan and this promised offspring who would come. Who is this offspring? Notice. All the Old Testament was pointing forward, looking, anticipating, wondering, when is he going to come? Notice what John tells us who he is. In verse 5, She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne we've looked at a psalm that describes and uses this language of a king who will rule with a rod of iron. It's Psalm 2. Psalm 2 proclaims uh, about the kingdom of God's king who is coming, his son, who will rule over all nations. And he will rule, it describes it, as being a rod of iron. And we've seen both from first and second Samuel we've seen from the book of Isaiah over the past four weeks who this king is, this everlasting king who will rule over all nations and all things it's Jesus it's Jesus notice Satan, his understanding of uh, of what is needed to do away with Christmas is very different from our Hollywood plot lines and from our culture. Satan knows and understands that if he has any hope, if there is any possibility for him to survive, he must bring an end to this promised one coming in to the world. He's intensifying his focus, intensifying his battle. Before the coming of the promised one, we see he's active, persecuting God's people. Remember, we talked about the, the stars being symbolic of those who are, who are descending and who are coming from uh, the, uh, the, the people of God. Notice it it talks about in verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. That's just talking about Satan's activity in the Old Testament, pursuing and seeking to assault God's people. But something changes with the baby in the manger. Notice the intensification of the battle, the direction of Satan's Antagonism and his focus is drawn in to this baby who has been born. Notice what it says in verse 4: And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Satan recognizes and understands that he must bring an end to this promised one. He recognizes that really what is going on here, this isn't just about some baby being born in a manger. This is God invading Satan's territory. This is an all-out assault on God's behalf to claim what is rightfully his. Jesus describes and talks about Satan uh, in uh, the accounts of, his, of Jesus' life and teachings. Uh, his followers communicate regularly that Jesus describes Satan as being the ruler of this world. Paul later would describe him as being the prince of the power of, this, of the air. Here, what's going on? This promised one is coming. He's entering into the world. He is coming into Satan's turf to do what? What? to bring an end to his rule and to bring an end to his reign and to establish his kingdom. And Satan recognizes that it's not just about bringing an end to Christmas. It's about bringing an end to all of God's promises. It's about bringing an end to the hope of humanity's redemption. It's about bringing an end to God's fulfilling and redeeming and restoring all things. If Satan does not stop the incarnation, if Satan does not stop the work and the activity of this promised one, then he will come to an end. Think about Jesus' life. Here we see John, he he actually condenses Jesus' life into just a few short words. Notice what he says. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule over all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. We go from Jesus' birth to his resurrection and his ascension. All in one statement. So what John is talking about here about the dragon's intention to devour the child when he is born and comes out of the people of God. This isn't just identifying this woman as Mary. She's representative of the people. Because remember, we see through her genealogy, she's descended from, uh, from David, from the line of Judah. Uh, but we see here the intention to bring an end to this promised one. Think about Jesus' life. What happens just right after Jesus is born? When the announcement comes to Herod, a new king has been born. What does a new king mean? It means an end of Herod's reign. It means that Herod does not rule. So, what does he seek to do? To kill every male child born in Bethlehem who's two years and under. Attack, assault. Satan is at work in Herod to bring an end to the life of this promised one. It's not beyond and above Satan's schemes to use rulers of the kingdoms of our world to bring an end to God's work and His purposes and His kingdom. But does He succeed? No. He loses. He is not able to bring an end to the life of the promised one. So He waits till a more opportune time. When does Satan appear later? Remember, Jesus goes off into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. And who shows up? Satan. What is Satan seeking to do? To bring an end to the purposes that this promised one has come into the world. To seek to to steer Jesus away from securing his kingdom in the way that God promised him. He seeks to deceive him, to lead him astray, to trust and hope in Satan's promises, to not believe and trust in God's work and his ability to bring about Jesus' kingdom through suffering. But does this promised one fall prey to the assaults and the effects of the evil one? No. Let's keep the wind column. God's got two now. Satan's got two losses. Wait till a more opportune time. When? Jesus begins to proclaim and teach and announce to his disciples the reason why he has come into the world, why he took on flesh, why he's among them, so that he might suffer and be rejected, and die, and rise again for His people. Peter, hearing this, immediately says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then when Peter hears this language about the fact that Jesus entered into our world to suffer and die, do you remember what Peter did? He rebuked Jesus. He gets in Jesus' face and said, how foolish can you be? The Deliverer? The King? The Christ? The Promised One? Die? Never. This must not happen. Guess who Jesus recognizes this is the voice of? What does he say? Satan, get behind me. You do not have your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Satan again is seeking to distort and bring an end to the purposes for which Jesus entered into the world. He must not die. So he waits until a more opportune time. The night when Jesus is betrayed, as Judas Judas leaves the gathering of Jesus and the the Twelve, it says that Satan entered into him. Satan foolishly thinks that the best way to bring an end to the promised one is to kill him. Let's bring an end to him using the the Jewish religious leaders and using Rome and bring an end to the life of this promised one, the one he's been seeking to devour from his birth all the way through his life. And what is the result? Satan thinking that bringing an end to the life of the promised one would be victory for him was sadly mistaken, or happily mistaken from our perspective. For it was through the death of Christ that Satan's end comes about. It's through the death of Jesus that he secures the victory on behalf of his people. Satan did bruise his heel. He wounded him. But Jesus inflicts the mortal blow and the mortal wound. It doesn't make sense. What you would think is this should have gone down just like the man in jeans and a sweatshirt. He walks up to this baby, picks it up, and walks away and leaves. No contest. Think about the picture John's given us. You have a dragon. A stinking dragon who comes to get a baby. What what chances are there that a baby will survive attack from a dragon? None. Zero. Unless it's not a mere baby. Unless this baby is the promised one who was announced and proclaimed from humanity's first rebellion that God says, I'm going to redeem you. I am going to deliver you. I am going to save you. And nothing will bring an end or will stop my intentions to save you, my people. Satan understands At the heart of Christmas, the reason for the incarnation was to establish God's kingdom, was to deliver God's people and to bring an end to His rule and His reign. But what we see here is what's Satan's record? Loss. 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 You get the theme? You see the pattern? When Satan comes up against Jesus, he always loses. Even when it looks like Satan wins, he loses. Jesus is the victorious one. The dragon can't stop the baby because the baby is our king. And Notice, in light of the surety of this victory, John is encouraging his original audience and us, God's people, that the way we live our lives now must be lived in light of this victory, must be lived in light of the confident assurance that we have that Jesus wins, but also that Satan loses. Notice in the passage what happens. He's going to rule with a rod of iron, but her child is called up to God and to His throne. Jesus, who dies, rises from the dead, and He rules and He ascends and He sits at the right hand of God on the throne now. But notice, He turns His attention to the woman again in verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Uh, Over in verse 13, we see that what the dragon does when he recognizes and realizes his blunder, that the death of the promised one brought about his defeat, Satan turns his attention to attack and pursue the people of God. Here at this point, it's after the resurrection of Christ. Now the people of God take on the, the, the identity of, uh, of all who would believe and hope and trust in Him. And Satan's intention is to attack and come after those who are trusting in Christ. But notice what happens. She flees into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. What imagery comes up in the Old Testament of the picture of wilderness Think about when God's people were attacked before. When someone attempted to devour and consume them. Pharaoh. Assaulting God's people in Egypt. But God comes in and he brings about a great deliverance of them. And where does he take them? He delivers them out of this oppression and he delivers them into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, what does God do? He provides for them, he nourishes them with manna, with himself, with his law, with his word, with his presence. Later, in Second Kings, Elijah, one of God's prophets, is being persecuted and assaulted by Ahab and Jezebel. He flees. Where does God take him? He takes him into the wilderness. And what does God do? He nourishes and He provides for him in the midst of his persecution, in the midst of the assault against him. And He feeds him with ravens and comforts him and encourages him with His word. What do we see going on here? God's people are reminded look, Satan's lost, but he hasn't given up his activity, he hasn't given up his action. As Peter would say, he's a prowling lion seeking someone to devour. He's lost. He knows that. But he is still after God's people. But what hope do we have? Who is the one that protects us? It is our God. What has happened every time God's people have needed to flee into the wilderness? Their God has provided for them. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, as he's reflecting back on what God was doing and providing for his people in the wilderness, he talks about them eating of, of, of water and of bread there. And he says, What was nourishing God's people then was the Christ, it was Jesus. The way that God has always nourished and provided and protected his people has been through his promises and the bringing about of his son. We, as God's people today, need to recognize and live our lives in light of this victory that He has secured through taking on flesh, becoming a baby. Why? So that He can redeem and reconcile us to God through His death. Is this still happening today? Is Satan still active? Is he still pursuing God's people? Over the past couple of months, in Chesapeake, In one of the elementary schools there, there's a club that has been trying to get started up. You see what it's called? The After School Satan Club. The people who started this club would say, we don't believe that there's an actual Satan. We don't believe in anything supernatural at all. If they don't believe in Satan, if they don't believe in the supernatural, why are they starting this club? Because there's another club that meets at this elementary school. A Good News Bible Club. Their purpose is to teach children about Jesus. About their need for salvation and that it only comes through Christ. These Satan clubs are only started up in schools where these Good News Bible clubs meet. Why? They might not Proclaim and say that there is a Satan. But guess what the scriptures say? There is. And he's active in the world. And unbeknownst to them, they are being used as a tool by Satan. What an appropriate name they've chosen. He is alive and he's active. What is the target? Bringing an end to the proclamation and the good news of the gospel. It's not just happening in elementary schools in Chesapeake. Over the past couple of months in Cuba, the atheistic communist government in Cuba has been seeking systematically to bring an end to the gathering of God's people for worship on the Lord's Day. They showed up at one church, the the authorities in a town, with sledgehammers on Sunday morning before the church gathered. And they start Pounding on all of the walls. They blow out all four walls except for the corner pillars holding up the roof before the church leaders get there and they are able to stop them. They continue to meet. There's a picture in a magazine we got from the Voice of the Martyrs of this church gathered for worship on Sunday morning. You can see them worshiping in the midst of this rubble. Four walls gone, four pillars there, the roof there and the Word of God being proclaimed. The next time they sought to attack a church, they didn't bring sledgehammers. They brought bulldozers and leveled the church. But guess what? The Gospel still goes forth. The message of Jesus still is proclaimed. Why? Because Christ took on flesh. He entered into our world. He defeated the evil one. Jesus rules and He reigns. But Satan, he's slipped. He's deceptive. Guess another way that He's at work in our world. Remember, what is the message in our movies? How how does Christmas need to be saved? What's it about? It's about gifts. It's about trees. It's about family. Satan would love God's people to begin to buy into that and to think, you know what? The Incarnation. Jesus entering into our world is not really that important. You know what matters most about this most wonderful time of the year? What you can get. Kids, I know this is very hard to understand. I've been there. I know that what is on your mind every Christmas Eve is what you're going to open up the next morning that's under the tree. Some of you are wondering, why in the world are we here? You know what we left under the tree at home? I get it. I had the hardest time falling asleep on Christmas Eve as a kid. But guess what Satan would love to do to you and your mind and your heart is to turn you away from resting and trusting in Jesus and thinking that what is most important about this season is what you can get and not what He has given and done for you. Resist Him. Parents, the rest of us, we need to recognize this too. Are we shifting and making this time of year or any other aspect of our lives more about us and stuff and status and events than about Jesus? This, though, I think is the... the the trickiest and most deceptive thing Satan has done, and he's done it today. Today. Guess what many churches are doing today? Not meeting for worship. This is what many people are beginning to think. Because we're celebrating Christmas, we will not gather... With the people of God on the Lord's day. How slick is Satan to use the incarnation and its celebration as an excuse for God's people not to meet with their God, whose life and death and resurrection has secured access to him? What is the nourishment that God provides? the word prayer the gathering of god's people guess what satan would love to do to us isolate us cut us off from the nourishment that our god is providing for us in this wilderness of suffering and persecution as we await his return do you find the bible boring it's the work of satan Do you find prayer a waste of your time? It's the work of Satan. Do you question whether there's anything for you in a sermon proclaiming the good news of the gospel or why waste your time coming to church on a Sunday morning is the activity and the work of Satan? He couldn't take out the promised one. So guess who he's focused his attention on? You and me. But just like the members of these churches in Asia Minor, John is pointing them to patient endurance and resting and hoping in this truth. Jesus wins. Satan loses. May we, seeing the beauty of what our Savior has done for us, He's taken on flesh to rescue you, to rescue me, his victory is sure. Satan is lost. Our king's coming back. And of his kingdom and of his rule, there will be no end. May we, as its victorious people, take and seek and find the nourishment that he provides to the gathering of his people, to pursuing and seeking our God and his word and to calling out on our exalted and our risen King in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for the good news of the Gospel. We thank You that Jesus is our victorious King. We thank You that we celebrate what He has done for us this morning. Uh, We pray uh, that You would continue to direct and turn our hearts to Him. Amen.